0: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new?
1: The story of Dole Foods is kind of like the story of Seinfeld. Seinfeld was a show about nothing that turned into a huge, massive hit. And Dole Food is, is a story about fruit. It's a story about fruit and vegetables. It's not that exciting. And yet, it's a story of a company that went from selling pineapples to being the world's largest producer of fruits and vegetables. Bizography, the show where we dive into the strange but true stories of iconic companies. Whether they're a current bright star in the midst of a massive dumpster fire or settling into the dust heap of history, they all have a past worth knowing. I'm Dana Barrett. I'm a former tech executive, an entrepreneur, and a TV and radio host. And over the course of my career, I've interviewed thousands of business leaders and reported on the bright beginnings and massive flameouts of the brands we know and love. Some of their stories are unexpected. Some are about constant innovation, and some are just about being in the right place at the right time. Bizography is a production of iHeartRadio and DB Media and is co-hosted, as always, by my producer, Nick Bean. Hey,
2: Dana. Thanks. So I think you're right. Dole is totally about timing, right? Throughout its history, Dole always seemed to be in the right place, whether that's literally in the right place, like geographically, or just in the right business position to make the next big move. It all happened exactly when it needed to.
1: Yeah, and to me, the story of Dole is also about sort of finding a niche, creating demand, something that's not that easy to do, and then owning and controlling and dominating a market and and, and controlling every piece of the business, the entire supply chain, from soup to nuts, as they say. <laughs> but the story has to start somewhere. And for me, the story starts with James Dole. So in 1877, James Dole was born in Jamaica Plain, Massachusetts. Now, not going to lie, I had to do a little side research on Jamaica Plain. Um, For people who live in that area, you're probably like, okay, we know the whole story of Jamaica Plain. But it feels to me like it should be Jamaica Plain's not Jamaica Plain. And so I had to do a little research. Uh, And apparently there's a lot of potential stories about where the name came from and why it's called Jamaica Anything, because it really doesn't have much to do with Jamaica as we think of it. Anyway, worth Googling, just saying, kind of interesting. And there were, I think there was a short period of time on many maps where it was referred to incorrectly as Jamaica Plains.
2: So no correlation to the island
1: none right. that i could figure Interesting. out yeah um in any case getting back to james dole who was born in jamaica plain massachusetts which is like the boston suburbs okay. essentially um he was born there in 1877 and we don't know a ton about his childhood in some of our stories we've been able to discern like the personality of a kid growing up this story not so much but we do know that his family settled in america in colonial times uh they were puritans and And we know that there was like a a strong clergy and ministry sort of portion of the family. So his dad was a minister. His maternal grandfather was a clergyman. Uh, We also know that Dole, James uh, Dole, stayed in that area, grew up in the area of Jamaica Plain, Massachusetts, went to high school there. And then in 1899, uh, at the age of 22, he gets his bachelor's degree in agriculture from the Bussey Institution of Harvard University. Now, I think this is just noteworthy because in a lot of our other stories, our founders were not educated.
2: Right. They're usually someone who just had a crazy idea. They worked their way from the bottom as an office boy or right. something like that, right? Exactly. This guy's ivy League educated.
1: Yeah, he's a Harvard man. So that same year, he's 22 years old. He accumulates $16,240. This is 1899. dollars oh. um, Some of that is his own saving up of money, and some of it is air quotes, family donations
2: <laughs> rich people in the bloodline maybe
1: well you know dad gives you a <laughs> handout of a mill cool mill i'm just saying
2: no correlation to modern times at not all. not at all right nothing
1: um it is absolutely worth noting that 16,240 dollars in 1899 is about half a million dollars today oh wow
2: so definitely not chump change
1: not chump change so he takes his Winnings. <laughs> <laughs> and he moves to Honolulu, Hawaii. Now, remember, this is 1899. Honolulu, Hawaii is like a foreign land.
2: Right. At that point. Across he was going the... from
1: Massachusetts Ow. to Hawaii. It's not like he got on a Delta flight.
2: <laughs> yeah, he had to, wow, train and then boat and carriage and all kinds of crazy ways. It's right. to travel.
1: And you got to wonder, why would he go there? It's also not anything to do with the United States. It just happens to be nearby. But right. it's it's not... A United it's not a state. And so um part of the reason is because Hawaii at the time was governed by his cousin
2: Sanford Dole. All right, all right okay so hang on I just I have to ask. His cousin is the governor of All right how did how did we even get there? Who is Sanford Dole and how did he even in, end up in charge of Hawaii?
1: I know it's it, it <laughs> it's sort of weird. it does seem odd because you're thinking <laughs> like you're picturing Hawaii in that era and at least for me I'm picturing like you know, luau's and, like, people in grass skirts and, you know, chiefs. Like like the
2: kingdom of Hawaii, right? Right, kings
1: and, right. I'm not picturing, like, a guy in a suit (laughs) as the governor (laughs) or
2: running it or the president. A white guy in a suit.
1: A white guy, no less. Yeah, whose family is, like, from a Puritan clergy background. Seems a little off. So here's the deal. We'll start with, like, uh, there's a little, I had to do a little research here, but this is a little primer on Hawaii. Okay. So basically in the 1780s and 1790s, uh, Hawaii was run by chiefs. Uh, who were fighting for power. Uh, and there were, you know, to your point, there were kings and that sort of, it was like the kingdom yeah, of Hawaii. There were tribes
2: in a way all over the place.
1: Yeah. And so um, by 1795, the tribes sort of uh, ended up all subjugated under a single ruler. And that was the king. He became known as the king. He was king. And I don't know if I'm going to get this right because oh. there's a lot of Hamahamas in here. All right, wait, before I even try, Nick, do you know how to pronounce this? Uh,
2: actually, I do. Don't ask me why. His name is King Kamehameha the Great. Oh, (laughs) I remember that now that
1: you said it out loud. Uh, All right. So he establishes the House of Kamehameha, a dynasty that actually stayed in power and ruled the Kingdom of Hawaii until 1872. So in that era, in 1844, Sanford Dole, this man who we're talking about, cousin of James Dole, um, is born in Hawaii. Because his parents were Protestant Christian missionaries Uh, from, you know, the same general area of the U.S. that James Dole was uh, born in.
2: The clergy tie back to his— There you go. Mm.
1: So, during this, like, kingdom of the House of Kamehameha, uh, Sanford Dole was born, 1844. In 1872, um, the, you know, dynasty of Kamehameha had continued, but the last king was a bachelor. No kids. And he dies in 1872 there's nobody to take over. Uh Uh-oh. So then they have a popular election and they pick the next guy. He lasts a year. I'm not even going to try to pronounce his name because he only lasts a year. (laughs) Also no heir.
2: (laughs) Wow. Bad luck, Hawaii. Yeah. So now
1: 1874 comes along and uh, they have an election, but it's contested and it's kind of um, almost like some of the scenes we see going on now. There's riots. People are mad. Oh, gosh. Um, It's sort of these two... Factions fighting for power in Hawaii and this is when the big daddy United States and Britain get involved They land there and they restore the island to order and uh, They now move the king that they choose of these two to sort of a very unofficial like, you know Ceremonial role
2: like the emperor of Japan now yeah. It's like, yeah, okay, you're the emperor, but you can't really do anything. Well, it's anything. like the
1: British monarch, too, right? right? Like, it just becomes sort of a ceremonial role. Right. So they sort of push the king out of a power role into a ceremonial role. Uh, meanwhile, Sanford Dole, who has uh, sort of grown up now, and he's got some education, and he's gone away to get educated, he's come back. He is commissioned as a notary public in Honolulu. Uh, And then he wins the elections in 1884 and 1886 to uh, be in the legislature of the Hawaiian kingdom. And he's a representative there. Uh, In 1887, uh, the Hawaiians essentially are forced to sign a new constitution. And this is a constitution forced on them essentially by white businessmen and lawyers, including Sanford Dole, And it strips the king of all—this is officially now paperwork stripping the king of all of his authority Mm. and establishing a new qualification for voting that we would be seriously pissed about today (laughs) in modern times, because this is like disenfranchising most Hawaiians, most laborers, and favoring wealthier white people who have landed there.
2: Go figure.
1: Yeah. So in 1887, this constitution is signed under the threat of violence, and because of that, it becomes known as the Bayonet Constitution. The king is reduced to a figurehead. He stays in that role uh, until his death in 1891. His sister, Queen... Can you pronounce her name? Queen...
2: I'm going to try it. Liliuokalani.
1: I think that's good.
2: That's not too bad. That was pretty good. <laughs>
1: Liliuokalani. She succeeds him. She becomes the last monarch of Hawaii. Oh. Um, in 1893, she announces plans for a new constitution to proclaim herself absolute monarch not super successful because uh, the Euro-American business leaders, they don't want that.
2: Oh.
1: Yeah. They're not having it. She's trying to take power back. The white people are saying no. Uh, They form this Committee of Safety, they call it. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) To essentially stage a coup against the Hawaiian kingdom and really completely take over. Now they don't just want to kind of run the place, they want to take over. Now, Sanford Dole decides not to join the Committee of Safety, but he does help draft their declaration. And then uh, once all of this goes down, I'll shortcut it, but essentially he becomes first the uh, territorial governor. Well, first he becomes president, and then it becomes a territory of the U.S., and he becomes territorial governor. And it's in that era, in the late 1890s, that James Dole arrives to kind of hang out where his cousin's in charge and start his business. Fun fact, Sanford Dole had this crazy, fuzzy long white beard that like came down to the middle of his chest kind of split into two parts mm-hmm. like he looked like he could have gotten on a harley and been really comfortable because there he top yeah exactly <laughs> and he had this big giant like white handlebar mustache to match and now modern times the hawaiian name for a particular kind of pale hair like spanish spanish moss is called umi umi odol meaning doll's beard <laughs> So there you go. He forever remains uh, sort of ingrained in the history. Like Hawaii's own Santa Claus. Of Hawaii. So obviously we digressed a bit, and we do need to get back to the story of James Dole and how he sort of became the pineapple king. We'll do that right after this. Are you tired of your scented cleaning
0: products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store.
3: Snag-A-Job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag-A-Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
4: You can work from the road while turning your vehicle into a powerful high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi on the network that covers more roads than any other carrier. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls. Finish up that presentation or answer last minute emails. Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to see if you're eligible for a free trial today. Based on independent third-party data, always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required.
1: So now we know sort of how Dole even went from Massachusetts to Hawaii and why he was inspired to go there in the first place and why, when he got there, he sort of had the favors he needed from his cousin to get started in business. So James Dole lands in Hawaii with his, you know, equivalent of half a million dollars that uh, he got from himself saving and his family. Right. And this is 1899, And he purchases a 64-acre government, Uh. homestead. It's all making sense now, right? (laughs) In the central plains of the island of Oahu. And he just knows, he went to school, remember, for agriculture at Harvard. So he kind of knows what he's doing. And he decides to start experimenting with some different crops to see what what he can actually plant there that's going to be easy to plant, you know, affordable, sturdy, all of that, so that he'll have a crop he can sell. And he experiments with a few different kinds of crops, ultimately landing on pineapple. So that's 1899, you know, 1900, takes him a little while to get going. In 1901, he officially founds the Hawaiian Pineapple Company. And from 1901 to 1907, he is just growing this company. Ha, ah, growing. <laughs> um, and there's not a lot of news from that era from the company. It's it's just sort of he's he's getting it up and running. He's getting the people in that he needs. He's selling pineapple um, locally, and he's, you know, beginning to sell it into California nearby. He's got to do that by ship. Um, and so, you know, he's starting to make that industry for himself. Right, and I can
2: imagine a pineapple tree probably takes a while to grow. There is that?
1: Yeah, well, that's a really good question, actually. We should do a little uh, little side Googling on how
2: long it takes. Biology lesson. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, we can go from history. It's not just biography; the history of iconic companies. It's also the biology. The science behind it. There you go.
2: Uh,
1: in any case, by 1907, things are going pretty well and he is seeing the writing on the wall in terms of what other food companies are doing. So he constructs a cannery and packing plant in Hawaii. As this is moving along, the... Um, yields of the fruit and the popularity of the product are sort of better than he expected. That's a good problem. And so he keeps on growing. New cannery, new packing plant. And so he's got more than one plant now, more than one packing facility. Now he's got a lot of product, and he's got to figure out where he's going to sell it. So he does something that I think, you know, was really modern thinking for those days. Creates the first ever nationwide consumer ad campaign in the United States.
2: Really? The first ever nationwide camp? So he went to all the newspapers and everything else and and put ads in the
1: paper. He created, you know, look, this is 1907. This is before the days of mass media as we know it now. Print was the medium. Right. And he created these print ads and placed them all over the United States. There are people, imagine, of course... You know, in the East Coast, the Northeast, who never saw a pineapple. Why would they know anything about pineapple? Hawaii is way far away, and they weren't really growing pineapples en masse in Massachusetts.
2: Right. And I can I can also imagine, I wonder how many people saw that first pineapple and went, what is that? Exactly. Didn't even know what it was.
1: Yeah, that happens to me occasionally in the grocery store with, when they'll introduce some kind of new fruit, and I'll be like, right. what? What is that? Where did that come from? But, but it piques your interest, right? Yeah. Well, then I get a little bit afraid and run the other direction, but that's just me. <laughs> uh, but he he creates this national ad campaign. And when you think about it, um, that is a hard hill to climb. Like, I have a brand new product that I have tons of over here in Hawaii. And I want to try to convince people all throughout the United States that this is something they need.
2: Yeah, that is really difficult to kind of create your own market, yeah. essentially. Because there was really no huge nationwide demand for it.
1: Right, and we certainly see that now in terms of technology, but in, in some cases. And in some cases it works, in some cases it doesn't, right? I mean, Absolutely. You know, right. We've
2: seen big fails.
1: I think maybe, and this is just a guess here, but I think maybe with food it's a little bit easier because if you can get people to taste it and it tastes good, there's going to be some interest. Right. Uh, but remember, I didn't say he started a nationwide food sampling tasting campaign. That's yeah. not what he did. This is print ad. <laughs>
2: That's got to be so... Oh, wow, I can't imagine that, trying to introduce for the first time and then convincing people to spend their hard-earned money on to it.
1: To buy it, right. right. And there, there weren't Instagram influencers. <laughs> there weren't, you know, TV commercials with people like celebrities <laughs> eating canned pineapple saying, this is delicious. Now, the beauty of it, though, is that it was canned. So it mm-hmm. was able to ship and stay fresh. Uh, it's not like he's trying to sell fresh pineapple at that time. He's trying to sell right. canned pineapple. So a little bit different. But nonetheless, I think that is sort of a, a massive undertaking for the era,
2: absolutely. In that in that era of media, yeah. yeah, that's a that's a big jump too. The fact that that's also interesting that he picked the pineapple the way he did and said, you know what, we're just we're just gonna tell everybody it's great and hope they buy in.
1: Yeah, so pretty amazing. Anyway, from 1907 to 1911, um, his ad campaign works, and the business is growing, and demand for pineapple is growing. But now they have a different problem, and that is that the process to peel and core pineapples is mostly manual, and it's pretty slow.
2: Oh, yeah, it's a pain in the butt.
1: Meaning the business is ripe for innovation. (laughs) See what I did there? Um, So, look, this is like the traditional, in a way, if you think about it, challenges that growing businesses face because they've got a product. There's demand for it. Now they have to keep up with the demand. Mm. This is one of the topics you hear all the time um, in modern business. You're a startup. You don't necessarily want want to run right out and get a giant client because then you're going to have to be able to supply the demand that they have. Now, you know, he created that giant client by going all over the United States, but he's also a Harvard man, so he's up to the challenge. So in 1911, James Dole hires a Hawaiian engineer by the name of Henry Gabriel Janaka to build him a machine that could make the canning of pineapples more efficient. Uh, Janaka takes the job. In 1913, he finishes this machine, and now instead of, um, I forget what was the original, I think they were able to peel like 15 corn peel like 15 pineapples yeah, in an hour. Yeah, I think the
2: best ones were able to do up to 15 an hour.
1: Right, so Janaka creates this machine that can do 35 pineapples <sighs> a minute. It's quite an improvement. Yeah. So, um, and I may not have those numbers exactly right, but Let's just say it this way. It was way faster. Right. Now, I know you did some looking into this mm-hmm. um, Janaka machine. What did you learn about right. it?
2: Right, So I learned that. So you're right. The first one was 35 per minute. It ended up over the next couple of years getting all the way up to 100 per minute. And I just, out of curiosity, I couldn't find a lot of actual details on the machine, but I, I found an image of the original patent that was filed. And then I found some modern day videos of this machine being used in the Philippines And it's the exact same machine. I mean, the one he patented had a lot of wood and stuff. The new ones are obviously all, you know, modern-day steel. Sure. But it's the same exact machine for over 100 years. Yeah. It's fascinating.
1: I mean, the machine is known as the Janaka machine. Yeah. And uh, it eventually becomes the industry standard. Though, sadly, Janaka doesn't live to see all of that mm. success. He died pretty young. He died in California in 1918. He was only 42 years old, and he died during the Spanish flu epidemic. So <sighs> he invents this thing in 1913. He's dead five years later. Wow. So he only sees sort of the beginning of the success. And, of course, his name lives on to this day, certainly at least in that industry. And now, I guess to the world, thank you, bizography. <laughs> but the Janaka machine was a great invention. And I thought this was really fascinating because, you know, nowadays we have... Um, engineers that are creating new products all the time, whether it's AI or robotics or just technology we're using online. And it's the engineer who becomes the celebrity, not the businessman.
2: Right, Like the Elon Musk, right?
1: Right. Or Zuckerberg, people like that who created the product. They're the engineer. They're the brains behind it. And they sort of also become the businessman.
2: Right. Um, Which doesn't always work out so well.
1: Right. Doesn't always go well. (laughs) But I thought this was really interesting because for all intents and purposes, aside from in the fruit industry... Janaka's name is somewhat lost to history. Like True. it's not because it lives on in that industry, but we don't celebrate Janaka as a great inventor.
2: Right, and there's not really anything that kind of harkens back to him in any way besides the machine. Like you said, there's not like a line of products that has his name on it or anything like that, no.
1: No, and his story is sort of, you know, you can't find very much about him at all except when he was born and how he died, essentially, and that he created this machine. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and Dole is the story that lives on and the name that lives on. So just sort of interesting, I thought, um, there. But, you know, also just important in the story of Dole Foods in that this was the innovation needed to really um, start to make this business You know, global. The ability for them to go global comes because of the ability of this machine to make pineapples uh, and put them in can, not make them, but, you know, can them as fast as it did, essentially. Uh, And that wasn't the only innovation in uh, the history of Dole Foods that made it what it is today. There uh, is a lot of innovation that Dole did in the supply chain side of things. We'll get to that right after this.
0: Just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store.
3: Snag a Job is where America goes to hire, with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
4: You can work from the road while turning your vehicle into a powerful high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi.
1: keeping all aspects of its business sort of growing equally. So with the addition of the technology to their business via the Janaka machine, now they have the ability to core and peel pineapples and get them in the can very quickly and get them out to this demand that they created in the United States uh, on the mainland. But they also have to have enough fruit to send to the canneries.
2: (laughs) You have to have enough trees.
1: Right. So this is where they realize they need to start having more land to grow on. Uh, It's 1922 now, and Dole goes back uh, to the family network in Hawaii and in Boston. Um, This is the equivalent of me calling, you know, mom and dad and asking for some extra money to continue to grow the biz.
2: Right. That's what this sounds like.
1: Yeah. He goes back to the fam, and he's like, look, things are going really well. See, I did this big ad campaign. People are liking the pineapple thing I I came up with. Um, But I need some more cash to grow this thing. And so they give him some money, and he goes back to Hawaii, and he buys hmm, an entire island.
2: What, what, uh, he bought
1: one of the Hawaiian islands? Yeah. <laughs> so he buys this island for the purposes of building a giant oh pineapple God. plantation.
2: <laughs> the island of Lanai. Yes. Right? Lanai. It's, it's, and it's not even the smallest
1: one. No. <laughs> it's a pretty decent-sized is. island. Yeah. And it becomes the largest plantation over time, of course, in the world with over 20,000 acres devoted exclusively to growing pineapple. Wow. I think he knew probably all along, as somebody who was, uh, you know, educated at Harvard, had this, you know, agriculture degree, but also a bit of the business, you know, learned along the way in school and out, that he couldn't just own one part of this process, that he needed to own the whole thing. The land itself uh the the canneries the production facilities the technology the right. transportation i mean he sort of saw that if he really wanted to be successful in this he was going to he wasn't going to sort of rent out space uh on somebody else's plantation right? right or or you know share some space in a warehouse with somebody he wanted to own and control as much of it as he could and this was true for the supply chain too because one of the other things slowing down the process was getting this Delicious canned fruit from Hawaii to the rest of the country.
2: Right. It came from a, on a slow boat from Hawaii to the Western coast. Yeah.
1: A <laughs> slow boat. I like that. So in 1927, now 1927, think about this era, right? Yeah, I mean, the
2: roaring 20s.
1: Yeah. Uh, this is still way before transportation as we know it and much of the technology that we now have.
2: Right. They're still in the process of trying to rapidly expand the train lines, right? Rail lines, right? Right.
1: And it's kind of hard to run those over to Hawaii.
2: Yeah, a little bit. Just not a whole lot of Not a whole lot of ground to do that on. So in
1: 1927, uh, James Dole gets inspired by Charles Lindbergh's successful transatlantic flight. And he sees already in 1927 that this air transportation thing is going somewhere. He sees some potential and decides this could potentially play a role in delivering
2: his fruit. So,
1: Nick... What does he do?
2: Okay. He sees this and goes, wow, I'm going to try and find some folks that can, you know, transport my fruit via airplane. So he sponsors what ends up being called the Dole Air Race. And he markets this all over the place, in Hawaii and in mostly California, but the western part of the U.S., and he puts up a prize of $25,000 in 1927 money. It's a lot. $25,000 for the first airplane to fly from Oakland, California, all the way to Honolulu. And he also puts up a second place prize of $10,000. All right, Dana, let me just ask you, all right? How many people do you think end up entering this thing in total?
1: Well, I have to, I don't know the math here, but if, if in the, uh, like early you know 20 years before that we said $16,000 was like right. half a million. So I would argue that $25,000 I mean this is a lot of money right. for it's those times. Right? Half a million. It's more, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean because if 16 was half a million 10 years before right? Uh, you know okay. It's a lot. Yeah. So it's 25,000 it's it's more than half a million in oh, yeah. equivalent of today. You can buy a lot with $25,000. So I feel like there's probably a lot of people inspired to do this. Now, a lot of people who are also Devilish because flying was like it wasn't like you were again getting on a Delta flight. This,
2: this was, was the era of the barnstormers, you're right. Yeah, I
1: mean, this is like people were you know, we saw those like black and white films of people trying to make flying machines and crashing into stuff. Right. And yeah, so this was a scary time, it was for for you know, flight. So you asked me what, how many? Yeah, people how many think? people do
2: you think enter? All right, I'm gonna say 25. Oh, close, a dozen people enter the race, and the top two prizes go to the only two airplanes that survive the flight. Uh, Not the one that gets there first and the one that gets there second. The only two that even made it at all.
1: The only two that didn't die.
2: Right, because the other 10 planes crashed and the other 10 contestants died while they were attempting to do this. Can
1: you imagine the scandal if this was like a reality show today? (laughs) Like, it's like Survivor, but it's literally Survivor. Like, we will give the prize money to the people who literally survive. Everyone else will be dead who, who at the end it of this. The end. Yeah. yeah,
2: and this is also, remember, th- like, th- this, the, they all essentially went Amelia Earhart. Like, they crashed and That was it. They never were heard from again. It was nuts. But see, the thing is, now he knows it's possible, maybe not the greatest odds, but it's possible. (laughs) And another interesting aspect is this not only helps his uh, supply chain, but an interesting tidbit is that this kind of makes Hawaii the tourist destination of America for a little while because used to, you had to have a lot of money to get on a boat and come to Hawaii. Well, now the people with all the money said, I'll take a plane. It's faster. So these ships that for a long time would take people from the coast of California to Hawaii are losing their top customers. They had to bring prices way down, which meant the average American could hop on a boat and go to Hawaii.
1: Interesting. Yeah,
2: so it helped the entire state, essentially. So kind of
1: fascinating that the rich people weren't, like, terrified to get on the planes. (laughs) You know? It's sort of like the rich people who want to go to space today.
2: Well, right, let's be fair. And the rich people who want to go to space today are, what, 30, 40, some odd like that? And the folks that don't are generally older. Probably the same thing. The 80-year-old rich folks back then said, I'll just take a boat. Right. But the younger folks said, yeah, let's hop on this newfangled flying invention and go out to Hawaii. Pretty interesting.
1: Fascinating. All right, so look, at this point, you know, James Dole is making investments in land, with the island, in mechanization, with the Janaka machine, uh, in air transportation, in this post Lindbergh era. And from 1913 to 1927, the combination of those things result in a decrease in the price of pineapples and actually kind of puts the company in somewhat of a vulnerable position. Uh, Because now all of a sudden, you know, uh, there's so much of it. Price is going down. Right,
2: he almost kind of hurt himself in a way. Right, right? with
1: all of this, like, goodness. He sort sort of hurts himself, makes the company a little bit vulnerable. Um, Also, growth always means the influx of capital. And if you're not careful about where your capital's coming from, you could be in trouble. And that's kind of what happens to Dole next. So in 1932, a real estate company named Castle & Cook that had actually been around since the 1850s becomes a majority owner of the Hawaiian Pineapple Company, James Dole's company. Now, How did they do that? Well, they'd already owned another Hawaiian agriculture company that had made a 33% investment in Hawaiian pineapple. So Castle & Cook and Dole, the human beings, had been interacting. They knew each other. And then in 1932, Castle & Cook, because they're a real estate company, they've got money. They come along and they pick up an additional 21% of the stock. And they now own 54% of James Dole's Hawaiian pineapple company. So, Nick, what happens when you lose uh, the majority control of your business.
2: Uh, I'll tell you what doesn't happen. You don't get to call the shots anymore.
1: Yeah, I would say what happens when you lose majority interest in your company is nothing good for you. Yeah, generally not. Yeah, that's what I would say. (laughs) So, of course, predictably, the purchase of those shares causes hard feelings between Dole and Castle and Cook. And after the reorganization, you know, they're trying to make nice. So they make Dole the chairman of the board, but... They immediately send him on a, quote, well-earned rest.
2: <laughs> go, go on t- vacation, dude. We're Take done. a break.
1: <laughs> You've worked hard to build this company. Right. You got that Janaka machine going. You got the island over here, Lanai. You know, you're tired. Yeah. Take a break. Done a good job. And guess what? Don't come back.
2: Oh. Yeah. Yeah, because they, they never called him back. They said, go on a break. Take as long as you need. We'll call you when we need you. And they never called him.
1: Yeah, so... A year later, he decides to come back on his own, 1933. He goes to his office and finds that it's been moved to a storeroom, (gasps) and his position as president of the Hawaiian Pineapple Company has been filled.
2: Wow. Yeah, he got fired and didn't even get told he got fired.
1: Right. Wow. So, essentially, he's out now. And while the company um, ultimately retained the name Dole, Dole the man, pretty much done Mm. from that point forward. The company, though, continues to grow and innovate and grow and innovate and thrive. And we'll talk about how they did that right after this. Are you tired of your
0: scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like... (sighs)
1: So by 1933, James Dole is out. He started the company, what, 30 years prior, give or take, uh, 34 years prior, 33, 32 years prior. And by this point, he's out. But his name um, actually becomes more prevalent once he's gone. Up to then, he was one of the few guys, it seems like, from that era who didn't feel uh, like he had to name everything after himself. Because a lot of the other bizography episodes we talk about, the companies are named for the men. So True. you had Wells and Fargo, mm-hmm. you had Sears. I mean, these are all people's names. Um, even Ben and Jerry much later. And eh, they went with first names, Good but point. still. <laughs> um joking obviously about them. But but he didn't really feel that. I mean, he used the his last name for other things he did. So it was stamped on things in large part, I think, because the Dole family name was so well known in Hawaii. Right,
2: it's still because a big deal. Of
1: Sanford and his crazy beard and all of that. Um <laughs> But the company up until this point had been Hawaiian Pineapple Company. Yeah. And so after he's gone in 1933, that's when Castle and Cook first say, like, you know what? People like the name. They know the name. It's popular here. We're just going to use that and we'll have that be the name. So 1933 becomes the first year that they actually stamp the word Dole on the cans of pineapple and pineapple juice that wow. they are selling. What
2: yeah. a low blow. You kick him out and then name the company after him.
1: Right. Ouch. Yeah. And then if this were modern times, like if he tried to do anything else with his own name, they would, like, sue him and not let him use his
2: own name. that's a great point.
1: I don't think that actually happened, but it would if it was today, you know. Um, In any case, that kicks off essentially what is 30 years of just solid business Mm -hmm. on the part of uh, Castle & Cook running now Dole Foods. And um, it was quiet for those 30 years for the company. This is also something you don't really think about in modern times. The company was private throughout this era, so they weren't reporting to shareholders. They weren't under any particular pressure to have massive amounts of growth, but they were a solid, profitable pineapple company, canning pineapple and pineapple juice and selling it, you know, it certainly all throughout North America. Unclear exactly when they began to sell into other markets. They didn't actually start to grow in other markets till somewhat later, um, but not much. At the end of that 30-year period, um, they start making some news again. Yeah. So 1961, finally, Castle & Cook decides to buy up the remaining shares of the Hawaiian Pineapple Company, and uh, which is now, again, the product is Dole. Yep. And um, they, by 1963, realize that they can you know, move product around more easily if it's not all coming from Hawaii. And so they start uh, going international from a fruit-growing perspective. And the first time they do that is 1963 when they start up Dole, Philippines. Um, So that was kind of a big year. Then 1964, they decide to diversify with a whole other fruit, and officially, they go bananas. (laughs) I couldn't help it. I was waiting all episode for the go bananas joke. Yeah. There you go. 1964 Dole gets into the banana business. Castle and Cook purchases 55 percent of a company called the Standard Fruit and Steamship Company, which is based out of New Orleans. And uh, that is how they get into um, bananas in the 60s and early 70s. And uh, that gets them into places like Costa Rica, Nicaragua. And they're basically becoming a global company now, at an interesting, that
2: point. Interesting fact I want to drop in here. Do you know that this actually is where the term banana republic comes from? No, not the store for with clothes, but like you've heard countries called banana republics. Yeah. It's because uh, Castle and Cook, Standard Fruit, Dole had so much power over these countries because they owned so much land that the government would have a policy or something they wanted to instate. And the presidents of these companies could go, no. And the presidents of these countries would go, okay, well, you know, Castle and Cook said no, so we can't. Banana Republics controlled by companies. That's where it came from.
1: And in fairness to the store where you buy clothes, they got their name from the idea of the Banana (laughs) Republics. Uh, Because, you know, the story of Banana Republic, just, you know, for people who don't realize this, when they first started selling clothes, they were all based on, like, safari-looking clothes from those kinds of places, like Nicaragua and all of that, right? (laughs) So, um, in any case, uh, really interesting, because I didn't realize that that was why that was. I never really understood why it was a Banana Republic. Like, I understood what a Banana Republic was, that it was beholden to that the leaders weren't really the leaders. They were, but I always thought it was because like the leaders were sort of
2: bananas, but right. Nope. It's because countries like Costa Rica and Nicaragua have some pretty terrible stuff in their history. Thanks to companies like standard fruit.
1: Yikes. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Also wait, companies forcing um, heads of countries to do things that they don't maybe wouldn't otherwise do. Also Mm. sounding kind of familiar. (laughs) Um, In any case, we digress. So, You know, the 60s and 70s was really uh, about um, globalization and growth. And one of the things I think is interesting about Castle and Cook, can we just call them Dole Foods at this point? I feel like their name, eventually it became Dole Foods. But for years, the company was Hawaiian Pineapple Company, and it was still Castle and Cook in some ways, and we're just going to go with Dole Foods across the board. Um, But they were were careful in their growth. And a lot of other companies we talked about, uh, certainly in that era, in the 60s and 70s, you know, we're talking about 1960s, 1970s, they were just buying up and acquiring any company if the numbers looked good. So we talked about RCA in an earlier episode of Bizography, and they were buying up all kinds of random companies that had nothing to do with their core business. Sears did the same thing. And ultimately, some of those purchases were successful, but many weren't.
2: Right, and the losses are usually big losses.
1: Right. But in 1972, the leaders of Dole Foods, Castle & Cook at that time, Uh, decide that rather than just buying up companies because the numbers look good, they are going to use what they call planned diversification. And they're going to buy companies in fast-growing niches of the food market only. They're going to stick to food and really not only stick to food, but really they decided to stick to produce, to fruits and vegetables. And so that was sort of their growth strategy from then on. They got into uh, California-based lettuce and celery in the late 1970s. Uh, in the '80s, they got into Europe mm-hmm. in their fruit markets with bananas, with citrus, with other deciduous fruits. I just wanted to say deciduous; it's a fun word. Uh, it is, <laughs> um, and, and that's really how they continue to grow. And from an innovation standpoint, they continued to innovate the way that they were selling fruit. So they got in and vegetables, and so right. they got into to frozen. Uh, and even in modern times, things like the the steam bags and like they've just continued to elevate what they're doing
2: right and i think that's a great point that's one thing i think most of us when we hear Dole, we think of fruit and that's an invention they came out with in the 90s was kind of the the the, the steaming bags of vegetables your frozen vegetable frozen vegetables in general was their idea and i think we forget we think so much of a fruit but really Dole, castle and cook like you said diversified big time into all kinds of stuff
1: yeah absolutely and they listen they got into you name the fruit basically they're in that business over time and this right. is going on really to modern times mm-hmm. And so the other thing that's interesting is there's a lot of pressure, I think, in for companies nowadays to reach a certain size and then go public, have their IPO and go public. And we see this across all kinds
2: of companies, not just technology, right? Yeah, there's a new one in the news every week. Big IPO from so-and-so Right, coming.
1: and you certainly see it in the food business because yeah. we just saw it with Beyond Burger, right? right? So that's nothing to do with technology, and they're going public with a food product. But this is something that Castle and Cook— a.k.a. Dole Foods, resisted. They did ultimately go public and then went back private and then went public and then went back right. private. <laughs> and this is all in much more recent years.
2: Yeah, in the last 20 years. Yeah. This happened, they went, what, private again two or three times.
1: A guy named David Murdoch sort of became the key player in the company in the 1900s. Like, I think around the 60s, 70s time frame is when he got involved. But the point is, he was, like, in 2017, he's in his late 90s, mid-90s, and he's still the chairman right. of the board <laughs> and still making decisions about, you know, public-private. And it was under his reign that they went public, pulled back, went private, mm-hmm. went public again, pulled back, and, and actually thought about it again in 2017 but didn't do it as far as I can find. Right. So um, it, really interesting because I think every time you go into the public markets, you realize you are then beholden to this quarterly growth number. And it can force you into making some bad decisions.
2: Right. It's almost like a a conflict between common modern day business sense and this kind of foundation laid by Castle and Cook so many years ago, right, was this smart, slow, methodical diversification. It's it's like a contrast of ideas that the core of the company says, no, that's not how we do business, even though the whole business world says to do it this way. And kind of shunning the, the normal business thought has worked pretty good for them, right?
1: Yeah, and in a way, in their own niche of, you know, fruit, of, of fruits and vegetables, they are Amazon-ish in the sense that they really controlled, if not owned, so much of the business, from the farms and the land to uh, the, the the you know, the warehouses and the canneries and the production plants uh, and the supply chain itself. They, you know, innovated in air travel Uh, And and moving the goods around and so not quite the level of Amazon in that regard, but nonetheless
2: But the one thing I think that's really interesting in that regard like you said is they're literally so Invested in having that full control top to bottom of what they're doing in their business right now They have 19 container ships that are the dole whatever and they've installed on the ships their own crane On the boat, so they don't even need a port. If we need to, we can pull up wherever with the ship and take our stuff off and land it. We don't even need your port to transport our product. That's crazy.
1: Yeah, so that is very Amazon-like. It's just not, we don't hear about it because they're not delivering packages to our front door, right? right? Um, But it is really pretty fascinating how they sort of understood that in a way that a lot of other companies have not. A hundred
2: years ago. Yeah, and
1: and continued it to this day. And, you know, I want to kind of swing back around as we start to, um, you know, come to the end of the story of Dole Foods to this idea that we tossed out in the very beginning about being in the right place at the right time. It's not entirely a story of a person just sort of being in the physical right place at the right time. (laughs) It's also about, you know, James Dole and Castle and Cook, um, and really even Sanford Dole to some extent, being in the right place in history. It's sort of they, you know, if they were born in a different era, even 10 years before or after, they might not have been able to do the things they did.
2: Right. So the technology of the Janaka machine was not around in 1900, but it was in 1913 when he made it.
1: Right. So if, you know... If- If he's born, you know, in the mid-1900s instead of the late 1800s, somebody's already invented that. He doesn't get to be the guy, right? And so, you know, also just the way the world was going, colonialization of of land, of countries was sort of starting to wane in the mid, you know, early 1900s, right? right. And globalization from a business perspective was starting to become a thing. They were
2: part of that trend. And they were part of both. That's the craziest part. We talked about Hawaii. One of the reasons all those business owners wanted America to annex Hawaii. Y.E. was <clears throat> no tariffs. Yeah. We know all about that with the news cycle today. Very familiar. So, so Dole benefits from that part of it. Right. And then they benefit from the globalization company-wise down the road. It's yeah. just so much of the right place, right time for this company.
1: Right. And to be fair, you have to be able to seize the moment. Right. The, that, you know, just, there were lots of other people that were born at that same time who didn't, you know, even people that had family money. Yeah,
2: there and, were other pineapple companies that didn't make it.
1: Right. And there were other, you know, missionaries who went places and established colonies or took over or whatever and didn't turn into the world's largest anything. (laughs) And so there is something about both the right place, the right era, the right person, uh, the right vision, um, and the perseverance behind it all. So there's a lot, I think, that makes up what made Dole Foods have the staying power that it ultimately had um, that I think is going to be hard for anyone to reproduce in modern times. It's sort of that... um, that it just has everything has to line up perfectly right.
2: Yeah. And you've got to have so much of the capital yeah. and the know-how. Things are so all just so complex anymore versus back then James Dole went, you know what? I'm going to buy some airplanes. Yeah. And we're going we're gonna to ship this stuff ourselves. It's not that simple anymore.
1: Yeah. Although I would also say possibly another sort of moral of the story is if you do have a great product, maybe you can make that uphill climb and find a market for it.
2: Yeah, maybe the market doesn't know it needs it yet.
1: That's right. Maybe your idea, that little idea in your brain, is going to be the next Dole Foods. Ooh. On that note, we are done for today. This has been Bizography. We'll see you next time. Bizography is a production of iHeartRadio and DB Media. I'm your host, Dana Barrett. My co-host is Nick Bean. Our producer is Tari Harrison. And our executive producer is Jonathan Strickland. Have questions, want to give us feedback or have a company you'd like us to cover? Email us at info@bizography.show or contact us on social. I'm at The Dana Barrett on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram or just search for me on LinkedIn. Thanks for your support.
0: Nerd wallet. finance smarter.